The word of God from Proverbs chapter 8, our Old Testament reading for this festival of the Holy Trinity. Then I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. This is God's word. Are any of you as energized as I am this morning because we got to confess the Athanasian Creed? Yes, two whole pages of the hymnal of standing all for that long thing back and forth, all kinds of weird words in it. I think I probably say this every year when I was a kid. I dreaded reading the Athanasian Creed, because we had to stand longer for it. Heck, when I was a kid, I didn't like the Nicene Creed, because it was longer than the Apostles' Creed. Let's keep it short. Let's sit back down and sing that hymn. Let's move things along. Roxy's shaking her head at me. She's like, how could you ever feel that way? I was a kid. I'm sinful. Now, on top of it being long, and having a bunch of words in it, like co-equal co-eternal trinity and unity and unity and trinity and what do all these things mean? Perhaps the thing that gives us the most pause about the Athanasian Creed is the word Catholic. This is the Catholic faith. And unless one believe it firmly and fully, one cannot be saved, what to do with that word Catholic, especially us as Lutherans, we wrestle with that word a little bit. And so here's that public service announcement that comes around every year on Trinity Sunday or whenever we talk about that word Catholic. The word Catholic simply means applying to all people in all times, in all places. Some might use the word universal. So when the Roman Catholic Church calls themselves the Catholic Church, they are simply saying that they are the church for all people and for all times and for all places. We would lovingly and respectfully disagree with them. But there is a Catholic faith, a faith that is the faith. For every Christian of every time and of every place, every person is to confess this faith in our triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, you might think this Athanasian Creed is just a bunch of dogmatic statements over and over that we don't really understand. That it's a bunch of sort of dead orthodoxy, a bunch of, well... Not real exciting stuff that we have to kind of grind through once a year. If you get a moment, maybe do it during the offering. Maybe do it later on after you've taken communion and we're singing hymns. Go back to page 319 and read the little description of the Athanasian Creed above it. It talks about a man named Arius from North Africa who was a leader in the church in the 4th century who was teaching that Jesus was not 
truly God. That he was lesser than God, that he was a human being with special honor and dignity in the eyes of God, but he was not God himself. And Arius' chief opponent became the Bishop of Alexandria, a man named Athanasius, from whom we get the name for the Athanasian Creed. We don't know that Athanasius actually wrote the creed, but he certainly was the foremost defender of the teaching of the Trinity. That God is three persons, yet one divine essence. Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity, the creed says. And for Athanasius and for those who defended the biblical faith, this was not just a bunch of dead, boring statements. This was something they risked their lives to defend. In fact, Athanasius himself was exiled five times for teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. Christians were threatened with death. They were accused falsely. They were persecuted, all for speaking the words and confessing the words that we just spoke this morning. And we grumble because we have to stand a little longer than the Nicene Creed. The point here is that we need to stop thinking about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Trinity, as some boring, systematic, dogmatic, theological treatise and recognize the joy and the hope and the life and the salvation that exists for you and me because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Old Testament reading from Proverbs chapter 8 gives us this beautiful little glimpse into the inner workings of the Trinity. We reject Arius, and we do confess that Jesus Christ is God, God in human flesh, God who came and dwelt among us to die for the sins of the world, to take his life back up, to ascend to the Father's right hand and come for us one day. But we also are mindful that Jesus, though he has taken on humanity, was not always human. But that at a point in history, he was incarnate of his mother, the Virgin Mary, was made man, took on humanity. Before that, he was eternally the Son with the Father, there before all things. And so you find Jesus in the Old Testament, but you you don't hear him called Jesus because that wasn't his name until he took on human flesh. In the book of Proverbs, Jesus is called wisdom. It fits with what St. John calls him in his gospel where he's called the word. That word, the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us is of course the source of the greatest wisdom that there is, the wisdom of God. And so the book of Proverbs records wisdom, the pre-incarnate Christ, speaking and talking about how 
Wisdom has been there with the Lord from the beginning, with the Father. From the beginning of creation. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the foundations of the deep. When he assigned the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman. Christ has always been there. From the beginning and before the beginning. From the foundation of all things. Christ is there. But then I want you to draw your attention to the second half of verse 30 and verse 31, the tail end of our Old Testament reading. Wisdom, Christ says, I was daily his delight Rejoicing before him always. Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. The book of Proverbs paints this picture of the father and the son delighting in each other. Of the son rejoicing in the father. And we get this glimpse of the emotion, the care, the love that exists between father and son. And indeed, we hear God the Father speak of this at Jesus' baptism, don't we? When he says, not just this is my son, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. In our gospel today, Jesus is the one whom the Father glorifies, magnifies, exalts. And of course, Jesus glorifies the Father as well. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit delight in each other, rejoice in each other, glorify each other. They are not just these stagnant, boring, sterile manifestations that we use a bunch of old dead words to try to explain. But within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is love. There is, in the words of our text, delight. It is indeed a poignant reminder as we are reminded ever so often everywhere we turn by the world what love is supposed to look like according to the world. That love exists as God defines it even within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I was daily His delight. The Father delighted in the Son Rejoicing before him always. The son rejoices before the father. But of course, this God of ours, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, brings joy and rejoicing and love and delight out of heaven and down to us here. Wisdom rejoices in his, the Lord's inhabited world, and delights the children of man. 
your Lord Jesus, who is now God and man, who is wisdom incarnate, delights in you and rejoices in you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pour out love and delight and rejoicing upon you, the most precious of the works of the triune God. You see, Jesus comes to do the Father's will. And by doing the Father's will, the Father is pleased. The Father delights in him. And so what is it that Jesus does according to his Father's will? He enters our humanity to die for sinners like you and me. Takes on our human flesh to suffer as one of us. Die as one of us. And yet to raise from the dead, rise from the dead as none of us could ever do of our own accord. He overcomes the grave so that we might overcome it as well. This... The Son's work pleases the Father. It delights the Father. And therefore, He rejoices and delights in you. This is the Catholic faith. The faith that is for all people of every time and of every place. It is for you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved you and delighted in you and rescue you. Because that is what our triune God sees fit to do. That is what their love and delight means for you. You are rescued. You are ransomed. You are redeemed. You are saved. And because of that, we as the church in turn, rejoice and are glad and delight in our God. That's the only type of God you could delight in, rejoice over, find your gladness in is a God who loves you so fully and so profoundly. Jesus in our gospel from John chapter 8 talks about Abraham Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Peter, in our second reading, quotes Psalm 110, when he talks about David finding gladness in the presence of the Lord. We, the people of God, find joy and gladness and delight in our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, because of the great love they have poured out on us. Love and delight like no other. Let us delight, rejoice, be glad that we can confess this Catholic faith, this faith for every time, for every person, and every place. Let's find joy and gladness in speaking of the God who has loved us. Not just in the words of the Athanasian Creed, certainly in them. But in all that we do, may our voices, may our lives, may our actions, may our every breath 
serve to magnify, to delight, to glorify, to rejoice in the God who has loved us so fully and completely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to our triune God, be all glory, honor, and praise, now and forever. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.